Welcome to the SSI Orbit Podcast, a forum for conversations that explore the ever-growing ecosystems of self-sovereign identity. And I'm your host, Matsur Glode. Today's episode is called Using Non-Binary Thinking to Accelerate Digital Sovereignty. And really, it wasn't really the planned topic, but I felt like it came up over and over again during the conversation with Ruben, who was really a great, thoughtful person to talk about this with. And for those who don't know who Ruben is, Ruben Heck is the identity lead at Consensus Mesh, and he also acts as the executive director at the Decentralized Identity Foundation. So in this conversation, we start off with some stage setting by covering the topic of sovereignty and operating in the digital world or the metaverse, um, with emphasis on government's role in the digital world. We then talk about why organizations such as Mozilla, Google, Apple recently objected to the W3C decentralized identifier standard. And does this go against the independence of people? We then move to the topic of interoperability where Ruben kind of talks about the need to focus a little more on portability. And he gives a few examples of this. We then talk about what's happening inside the decentralized identity foundation. And we talk about some of the cross community collaborations. We then discuss what are some top-down and bottom-up initiatives that are happening in the self-sovereign identity space and why it's not one or the other and how maybe they'll play together. We then close the conversation by contrasting verified versus verifiable and talking a little bit about where organizations could fit into decentralized ID ecosystems and where they could offer value to the broader ecosystem. Now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Ruben Heck. Enjoy. Okay, so I want to start kind of talking about the whole concept of digital sovereignty and maybe a little bit of kind of an introduction to get to this topic. And based on some world events that have happened uh, earlier this year in 2021 that are quite interesting, and just to kind of go over that, um, I think in a lot of ways, technology companies today have they definitely have sovereignty over their digital space, right? They, they build the rules, they build their algorithms, they build their data structures and so forth. Um, so tech companies have sovereignty over their digital spaces, whereas um, mostly governments don't, but governments do have sovereignty over physical spaces, right? Where, where they're in charge. Um, and then this kind of event I wanted to allude to was uh, on January 6th this year in the US, where uh, a mob of supporters of President Donald Trump at the time attacked the US Capitol in Washington. And what happened in return is the response of that went to the companies, right? Not to the governments. It's the tech companies that were empowered to deplatform the president of the United States at that time. And you could think what you want about that, but that's. Uh, a quite a powerful thing to be able to do. And then you also saw certain platforms like Parler get deplatformed from the infrastructure uh, providers and so forth. Um, another event, and this is kind of the year prior in early 2020, just to kind of drive the point forward, there, there was a hack into a Texas-based solar wind system. And there was malicious code that was injected into company software. And once again, it wasn't really the government that kind of uh, took charge there, it was Microsoft who found out and basically fought back, right? Um, So if we look at kind of the whole digital world today and how it's evolving, like where does the government sit in that space now? Do they matter in the digital space today? So I think you bring up a few interesting aspects here. So is like, I think without going into a very political debate about like freedom of speech and so on, I think, um, is is it already um, reducing 
someone's freedom if one platform doesn't operate anymore as your as your platform to distribute your content and i thought that that's why i think there's a very different perspective of like what is the platform you mean and um, if all the big tech companies come together that's one thing if there are different tech companies as we have different parties who are supporting different political views which i think was happening in, in part um, and i think generally speaking in our like uh, digital world the dependency of big tech or big corporations is somewhat scary period yeah I think people don't want government to have too much control or other companies to have too much control. Um, so in my perspective of like in which direction we're heading, it will be like a much more digital world. Yeah, we see this now with um, smaller things like, okay, many people in the SSI space think about, okay, you can log into your bank, you get like your driver license and all of these like very, let's say we're just replicating the old world with a more modern world to make it easier and frictionless and so on. But I, I see access to all type of um, know, buildings, your car, like you, you access um, in the physical as well in the digital world will be so much more around your digital identity that, um, or in the metaverse, like everywhere you're operating, it will be digital. <clears throat> so these are often operated by companies yeah? when you when you have your home uh, system which is amazon or apple or whatever so i think we need to start with the with the fundamentals which i think in this case is like a digital identity which gives you um, at least a sovereignty of this minimal thing because you're still operating in this potentially very different environment with uh, big tech uh, so government's uh, role in this whole thing depends on where you are which government you see and like uh, which people like what what they feel like the government is, is there for if you look in switzerland in the united states china and other places it's obviously quite different of like how the role of the government um, sees itself i see for example the european union um taking a quite user-centric approach but it's also a very different starting position for the european union because um they big tech companies which are controlling not only the president's voice in the United States, but also basically every person's phone in the European Union is either Apple or uh, Google, more or less, like from an operating system. They all operate on clouds, which are Microsoft, AWS, and so on. You can get the idea. So I think the sovereignty um, needs to I don't know, be fundamental with what do people like operate on and, and how do governments operate? The problem is it's not sufficient if the government owns now their own whatever cloud infrastructure for their services if every of the users depending on uh, infrastructure from big big tech companies from other parts of the world so many governments already took a very let's say national approach so like in china and singapore and others regulators who are pushing in particular for banking service need to be in the country that the data and like the, the sovereignty is not depending on other people's or other countries' uh, tech companies. So I'm not quite sure I fully answered your question, but I think it is super fundamental um, from an infrastructure perspective to have the sovereignty for governments, but also for the people in a certain state. And so I think there is this, I think, rethinking, uh, in particular, I think once, I don't know, the last like years, many people in Europe woke up and like uh, realized the dependencies of the United States 
um, is a threat for at least uh, Europeans. Um, I'm sure this is true also for most other parts of the world. And I think besides China, no other state was really pushing um, hard against that development. It's properly said that it really depends on the the government. Like if, if you're talking about like, hey, we need to remove big big tech and we're China, you're basically trying to remove big tech for big gov in China. Whereas if, if you're in the EU or if you're in Canada, which is a, a similar kind of uh, types of policies, it's kind of like, well, if we want to remove big tech and be so dependent on big tech, we also don't want to inject big gov because then what have we really done here, right? Um, so, so, and then you're also kind of talking about being able to access stuff and you, you mentioned the metaverse, which uh, is a, a word on its own that's really gained a lot of momentum this year. Um, I think we're, we're, we're definitely seeing a lot of convergence, right? Even the physical world, access yeah. to the physical world is becoming digital. Um, when we talk about maybe removing the dependencies on big technology, um, do some of the recent, and then kind of looking from the big technology side of things where they're just trying to, uh, I guess, grow their grow their bottom line do some of the recent like mozilla google apple stuff that kind of all the pushback that happened against the decentralized identifier the w3c is that all part of the same type of story like how, how do you look at that inside of this whole topic of digital sovereignty so i think that's a it's a very interesting um, question i think the the arguments brought up um, from some of the objecting companies um, really opened the question, like, what is the motivation behind it? I, I, I feel like they're, I'm not sure it's, it's against the fundamentals of like uh, independence of people. Um, my impression is it is somewhat more um, big corporate tech competitive uh, actions in some form that some people see Microsoft being quite ahead and some of the comments made, I'm not sure if every listener understands some of the backgrounds, but let's say uh, Mozilla, for example, filed an objection to what's the decentralized identifier, uh, which was incubated or which is developed in the WCC and was supposed to be like a formal standard now. And uh, the objection had multiple aspects in there. One is that it is not um, clear enough, specific enough to have like better interoperability um, which is a bit like behind, like besides the point of what we try to achieve is like many people can develop, develop this um, methods and they have core principles to be aligned, but let the market see which ones is more adopted and don't tell or don't force this in this process to figure out which of these ones are the ones which are supposed to. But I think the more interesting argument is, for example, the argument about like uh, the energy consumption. So the argument was basically like, hey, DIDs use blockchain and blockchain burns so much energy and therefore we can't support this. And I think, and that's like my speculation as an individual, not as a representative of the, uh, in the form that uh, Microsoft choose to use a public blockchain, aka the Bitcoin blockchain as the backend for their layer two um, solution. Um, to anchor and basically use the Bitcoin um, trust or the, the stability of the Bitcoin network um, to, to ensure that. And so I assume, and that's more my gut feelings, that there is this aspect of like Microsoft is ahead um, in that space. And maybe that's something where some other big tech companies don't like this because it could be disruptive to some of the 
very data-centric um, business models. If you ultimately see the vision that what you have with a D, like a DID, um, you have a starting point to build user-centric uh, data stores, user-centric services, user-centric many things. And that is obviously not necessarily in the best interest for every big tech company. So it's, it's not unclear, and so it's not super clear. It feels more like a competition between certain tech companies for now than um, a government-related um, aspect here. That makes sense. It's almost an easy argument. It's not that it's not true that uh, blockchains consume power, like the, the proof of work uh, blockchains, especially. Um, any type of infrastructure that you need to host is going to consume power. And it, it is funny too, because I think this is an old stat, but there was some stat about just every Google search is basically uh, the equivalent to, to powering a lower energy light bulb for like two minutes type of thing, right? Every Google search. And, and, how, and how many Google searches do, do you make a day? And how many yeah. Google searches happen a day? It's, it's just nuts. So it's, it's kind of a, kind of like a simple argument, I think. To, I think just like, I think maybe I haven't even like made my statement about this energy thing. I, I don't want to defend, I'm not taking the argument that the Bitcoin blockchain's energy consumption is reasonable or not. I think I don't want to go there. I know there's like very philosophical debates about this. What I'm, what I think I'm referring to is there are hundred bit methods out there where maybe I assume less than 10, maybe less than 10%, yeah, 20% max are using proof of work blockchains. Many of the bit methods are using other like proof of stake systems, which are way less energy consuming or even private um, or like consortia type of blockchains or even non-blockchains. So I feel like just using the power argument, like the, it, it, you can use this technology or the specification with technology, which burns energy is not in my mind, a sufficient argument to not um, support like a, the, the technical or data structure standard. Um, we could say like this should not be used with proof of proof of work blockchains could be a statement, which is a recommendation from the industry to the market. Um, but I don't think it is, should stop that we are agreeing on like this specification, which doesn't imply any technical choice. Yeah, and I agree with you. It's uh, and I don't want to get into uh, the argument of that either, right? So you you could look at, and I, I think generally uh, people in in these types of arguments or in any type of arguments, just it's it's either one side or another. Without kind of it's never one side or another, right? It's just you, you need to look at uh, the positives and negatives and have a conversation about both sides. But uh, leaving that one behind, um, you said one of or the, the first argument is kind of saying not better interoperability. So I guess um, DIDs are making some of these browser giants maybe a little bit nervous. They're saying it's not better interoperability. I think the whole concept of interoperability is a little um, um, not well understood, I guess. Um, there's multiple layers to interoperability. I did appreciate a, a blog post from uh, the diff. Um, there was a two-parter there setting interoperability targets. Um, how do you explain interoperability to uh, folks in the self-sovereign ID space? And um, the first, and are, are there similarities or differences in the way that people look at interoperability just in, in the blockchain space as well? I know it's a bit of a fully loaded question, but um, 
Could you give the listeners just a little bit of a better understanding of what are the different um, levels of interoperability here that we're striving for and why they actually will, will make our lives better? Yeah, I would, I would maybe introduce one, one other term, which is, I think, portability. So the interoperability is like basically um, different people have, let's say, for simplicity, like an SSI wallet, which allows you to hold credentials and some bits and like interact with stuff. So if you and I have a different wallet, we should be able to communicate and transact uh, with each other. So there's an interoperability play that whatever whatever blockchain or whatever did method you have chosen and I chosen, we should be able to uh, understand each other. I can validate your did uh, and say, oh yeah, that's that's truly uh, you, and therefore can start communicating with you in a in a more trustworthy way. The portability aspect is if you choose to leave your wallet and switch to another one. Yeah, so it's like you're transferring from like iOS to Android. How easy is that? How is it moving like between different type of wallets? Um, and so to achieve portability, we need to have this um, basically on every layer of the stack from your hardware. And, and crypto brings portability in, in the aspect that I'm able to move my Bitcoin from one address to another address uh, to, to a different exchange, but I'm stuck on that protocol. I was about to say like, um, if you if you think about this, you need to like in an ideal world, there will be different hardware manufacturers. Even that is like somewhat complicated these days, but because many chips coming from very few companies, but um, to have the sovereignty over your um, over your identity or digital you, um, hardware should be your choice. The operating system on top should be then uh, another choice, and then you build the wallet software of some form uh, is, is something else which can be different providers. And then on top of this, you build different protocols, blah, blah, blah. And then you have maybe different cloud um, solutions, so which allows you to use different devices. And now um, to, to achieve that you can move now from your one wallet on one device to a new one, we need to have um, not only software which people can trust, and that's where like open source is a big um, aspect in there, but not only open source, but also open specifications. So what that means is if the specifications are like, basically that's a blueprint of how to build the software. So you can write this and if you are, if you don't trust it or other people or other countries, whoever wants to build the software can do so. And just by following this blueprint can build a new set of software in a different language, in a different whatever. And that's, I think like an important um, piece in our, in our ecosystem. Um, everybody talks about open source. Open source does not imply that you can just easily manipulate the software. It also doesn't mean that you can use every open source software freely and build uh, and, and manipulate it. So the specs and open source are like crucial fundamentals in the space. They should be coming without any patents and anything else so that there's no, like imagine some of these specifications have some algorithms or some ideas in there which are patented by one big tech company. And suddenly this tech company could influence and say like, oh, all of these needs to pay to us or they cannot do these changes. And that's all the things we want to avoid. Like true sovereignty needs to have all these like underlying like aspects. And then what I, what I typically try to explain people about the portability is like making it easy for people to understand. Low friction to move from one offering from one company or from one blockchain to the other one. 
And the, the things people understand is your phone number, for example. Uh, when, you, when you have like your phone number with AT&T and you will switch to T-Mobile, it's easy now because I think the government set some laws that it must be like portable. You can keep your identifier, aka your phone number, and port it to someone else. That's great because now there's competition. And if you don't like anymore your telco, you can switch to another one. So there is at least some form of competition because lower friction. But you can only choose to, or you can only move this phone number within one context, aka one country. You cannot move from Germany to the US and keep your phone number. So that's limited, but already okay. Think about um, where it's really great is like files. You have a file on iCloud and you move to Dropbox, easy. Because files have are self-contained, portable pieces of like information, which you can move easily between all of them. You can copy the local, you can copy it in the cloud. That's true portability of like data. And we need to have something which is similar. And then the third example is like email. So email is whatever name at gmail.com. So you're always stuck in this. What you can do is you can forward it to like another email, but this email is owned and controlled from a company. So only if you own your DNS name, you can switch it over and can keep it for you. But with these three examples, it shows we need actually a combination of all of the stuff. You need to be, you can, you should be able to move your identifier, ideally not just in a country or not just in one blockchain or just one context. Ideally, you can use it across different blockchains. You can move your files or your keys, which I think is another very like interesting aspect because I expect that keys, like your private keys, will sit way more uh, in hardware than it is today. People today in the blockchain space often, like you copy this 12 words to another device and then you start from scratch. Like once, once your um, many aspects of your life are depending on this because it accesses your home, your car and, and everything you control of devices and access to your bank and, and all of these things, not, not even saying that it might control also your digital assets, which probably will be the case. This piece of infrastructure and keys will be so critical that everything we're even talking about today is like likely un insufficient. Key management needs to be way more sophisticated and copying 12 words to a new device is not going to make it. And it's like not, not, the, not the way how I think in the future this can operate. So we need to have this portability and the ability to move between providers, software providers, infrastructure, protocols, um, and therefore the effort we're doing in our space is, I think, fundamentally important for the bigger goal. Any company could have built the stack three years ago and would have worked probably, um, but it would have not achieved the ultimate goal of the true sovereignty for people. If we're really trying to achieve true sovereignty, it's, it's all about um, giving public goods or creating public goods. And I know a lot of the, the European governments and Canadian governments as well, that's what they're trying to do, uh, at least in offering um, uh, what, what a, they'll call a foundational identity to, to their citizens. It's very important for them and very much aligned to, to the vision that everything needs to be open source and open specs to be able to achieve interoperability and portability. Um, so um, now just moving that forward, a, a lot of the guests that I've had on this podcast in the past um, have been uh, from the, the Trust Over IP community. And uh, we, we are involved in the Trust Over IP, but we're also um, involved in the Decentralized Identity Foundation. Um, 
it might be helpful for the audience here that um, maybe is more leaning on the trust over IP side, they're, they're more involved there. Maybe they're not, <laughs> I, I, I don't really know, but just, just based on the fact that we've covered uh, more of the trust over IP uh, stuff, um, what, what is some of the cool stuff that's happening in the decentralized ID foundation uh, today? And the second part to that is, um, I think we all have the same vision. When I say we all, I mean the different communities that are in the self-sovereign identity space. So um, with some of these cool things that um, I'm hoping you could explain to the audience that's happening in the diff that might make, want, might, uh, make people want to join, um, what are some of the cross-community collaborations that are happening as well? Mm -hmm. I think the focus of the Decentralized Foundation is way more around like the technical and specification side. So um, like just to maybe super high levels to start with, I think in at least my understanding and my perspective, so I don't know whether and how everybody else in Trustable people would respond to this, is that the, the technical and deeper protocol work uh, happens in DIFF and the focus in trust of IP is around uh, trust frameworks, governance frameworks, like um, a bit more the like surrounding ecosystem from an, um, I don't wanna say top down, but like I, I see lots of the primitives and the technical work um, DIFF is working on. And it's maybe for, for listeners who might have not heard about this. So the Decentralized Identity Foundation started like five years ago um, and was really around, um, let's say incubating and speaking about like some of these um, technical standards um, in a way that is much, let's say more agile. Yeah? We, I think there are other standards organizations which are like what WCC is focusing on web, IETF on like internet protocols, but we wanted something which is identity or digital identity focused and um, is not maybe as formal. So it just was, it was an intention that we are more like the the early stage uh, incubation of like uh, of these standards, which allows us to move much faster. So the the type of working aspects in there is like this identifiers and discovery, which is um, often like what the the dead specifications is like the formalized burden. But we are like talking about like uh, authentication with dits and like all these like um, protocols around this or the universal resolver, which is like a piece of technology which allows. Um, if you do not understand this DIP method, you can go to this universal resolver. It supports multiple DIP methods and it gives you like um, a result for resolution of, of a DIT. So we have like working groups around this identifier and discovery. We have DIT auth, which was a working group which incubated like that you can log in basically with, um, with your DID. This is an example, which I think is kind of cool because um, we incubated it for a year in DIF. And then we handed it over to the um, OpenID Connect Foundation. So it's not, it's fine. Like we were kind of like, okay, can we just give this to you guys? You continue doing this because they 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 showed um, interest to, to to do so, and that's great because we don't want to necessarily own all of that stuff or control it. It's like incubation and then give it to the maybe better place to make it a formal standard. So it depends. Some of the standards might stay. Depends on what the what the community wants. Then there's claims to credentials, which is really um, around verified credentials is the, is the WCC standard, but people want to like build protocol marketplaces, like all kind of other standards to have protocols, how you ask for the right credentials, share the credentials, like protocols on that level. 
Then we have uh, DITCOM, which is something which was which started actually in the Hyperledger um, community or ARIS um, world. Um, and because Hyperledger was not focused on any patent or IP protected um, work and specifications really need this, based on what I mentioned earlier. So the ARIS community and DIV people came together, discussed it at IW, and then we agreed to um, incubate DITCOM within DIV. And so that was, I think, the first really good step to bring the community together because before that it was like a little bit like we're doing here, we're into there. So that brought already like the, the community got together. And then there's SciTree, which is one of these like technologies like Microsoft is building on. Secure data storage is a big one, which I think the ARIS community works on agents, um, which is like a more sophisticated uh, cloud offering, which also can sign stuff, operate on behalf of the entity. Whilst Microsoft was like uh, introducing a while ago this called like identity hubs, which is a more like a, a cloud storage, like a more simple um, way to for you to store certain credentials, but it does not sign anything. It does not. So these things became um, much better because the teams were starting to talk to each other in that groups. So both of these things are still happening. And then um, uh, then we have like wallet security, which is kind of interesting. So there are more and more government entities which want to define a set of rules like if you receive certain credentials what's the minimum expectation from the hardware like for example um, your uh, apple pay card you can move them somewhere else but you need to re-enroll and if you get a driver license um, in in germany there are certain um, restrictions what you can do with this credential you cannot just copy it over to like another device which doesn't have any security so there's this aspect and then applied crypto. And that's, I think, as well cool because there was, there was some effort already around crypto in, in, in the hyperledger world. Um, this applied crypto is kind of like, again, um, they, they want to use different crypto primitives to solve replication and so on. And the same here, I think it, it brought together the community on really like the more deeper technical stuff on like, how do we solve certain accumulators for revocation. So that's that's the like other ones. And then we have um, in DIF now more and more quote unquote special interest groups. So there's certain um, banking and finance, healthcare came together and they want to talk about their requirements and how this could translate. And I think that's a bit more overlapping to what's made what TrustOrp is doing where it's more industries talking about governance. Here it's a bit more like requirements on the technical side. And then, then we have like product managers talking and glossary work. So like diff fun, like foundation is on the specs and open source pieces um, and uh, has like, I think some members just wanted to talk about like some of these more use cases or uh, UX questions came up. And so that's kind of like diff um, broadly speaking. We have a 300 members now. Um, and I would say there's a pretty big overlap with trust of IP. And folks and, and that's kind of like that's good it's like not that's not a bad thing it's actually like i think we are all part of the linux foundation family so we're all like in the same umbrella it's actually even underneath this the joint development foundation which is the like legal framework which trust of ip um, i think also cci which is the COVID credential effort as well as uh, trust of ip so we are technically very aligned on all the like organizational levels and we are we're I think, I don't know whether we have already or in the next one or two days, we'll jointly make a statement to the market about 
Um, the WCC did specifications and the objectives to this. So there's more and more, I think, collaboration. I mean, most of us know each other since uh, many, many years, and we have all a joint um, bigger picture objective. I think the main difference, and that was all like the common things in the is that um, a lot of the work is very like technically oriented. So we're like not talking about governance models or legal frameworks and all of those aspects in DIFF. The, these are like primitives, which we believe can be used in very different contexts. Um, and so it builds just, I think, a foundation for pieces. And then Trust over P, I think, attracted a lot of um, big tech, government, let's say, I don't know, I, I call it often top down because the primitives, um, top down is like, government issued identities or governments are issuing credentials, they can revoke them on all of this stuff and the trust models, because that's the real world today. Yeah. So if a government wants to do this and a driver license, all of this stuff needs to have this context. But there's this other world, and that's where many of the people in DIFF are also anchored in is identities more than a government issued credential. It is bottoms up, people own their identity can interact with the identity, start building reputation bottoms up. And um, what, what I mean with this is like, if I'm interacting with hundreds of people every day and uh, I'm active in certain communities on Discord and get credentials because I'm a really good deaf, I'm a really good I know, marketing person and I get now attestations and or credentials from other people or communities, I'm building up what I call like a bottom up reputation and whilst um, many people in the quote-unquote more government top-down one are taking current trust models and putting them in a digital world. You, you segued into the exact topic uh, I was going to ask, uh, so that's quite funny because I, I was going to say, well, th there's a lot of top-down um, strategies that are being pursued, which is why um, governance and trust frameworks are, are attractive topics because it's like you said you're you're really trying to you're trying to digitize or digitalize uh, the the current uh, physical world right and the current processes and governance frameworks there, which is why I think we're seeing a lot of interest for um, public but permissioned uh, blockchains right as as anchors um, where you're able to kind of control the governance and, and implement that there um, versus the whole other world and. Um, when, when I think about kind of top down and, and bottom up like approaches and like enterprise uh, SaaS type, just for an example, like um, Salesforce is very top down. You try to push down versus Slack is it's kind of a grassroots movement. People start using it that goes up. So you have you have your government government that's trying to issue a foundational ID from the top down and uh, really um, create digitally native solutions that replicate their, their policies and legislations in the digital world, but then um, you have this whole Web3 space, which is just um, saying, you know what, screw that, we could really reimagine how everything works, right? Um, and so then instead of having kind of the, these public blockchains, but permission govern, governance, it's just completely public and permissionless, right? Um, and this is where I think you described nicely, you have these bottom-up uh, use cases. How do you think the adoption of the, of the, do they start to touch each other at some point? Like the top-down stuff will start to interact with the bottom-up. Um, is there a whole world that's just going to be on the bottom-up use cases that's just going to live there alone? Like, How do you see both of those co coexisting? Yeah, I think um, 
many people often think it's one or the other way. I think it is both. And I think we, there is also governance or governance or trust frameworks in the bottoms up. It's just not explicit. It is like, how would I trust someone from that Discord community? Um, it's less formalized. So what I, what I expect is that we will see um, ultimately identity is, is just like a starting point, like an identifier. And it's all about building a reputation. And the, because the reputation is, is the thing which reduces the friction to do a certain use case. Yeah. So if you, if you have something um, where I can go to a company and this company would say like, okay, give me a bunch of your information. And if you just give them a governance, whatever, here's my driver license, the risk for them to give me a certain service is not super low, depends on the thing. Like, if you, like how do they know just because they know that I'm Reuven and I'm a legit uh, like a, a person living in a certain country, the, the risk for them that I'm not a good driver or like might destroy their Airbnb or something else is not, that doesn't tell them much. So the, the bottoms up, quote unquote things like if you're an Uber driver, if you're an Airbnb host, if you're you're building all this type of reputation, but at the moment they're all siloed in the different data um, silos of Airbnb and Uber and others. So if, if I build a good reputation with Uber, I cannot go to Lyft and say like, hey, I'm a really great driver because I have a driver license. Yeah. So the bottoms up like that I have like a hundred um, customers who are driving with me would be so much more powerful for someone like uh, Lyft to onboard me into better, whatever, uh, internal uh, ranking or something. Um, so I believe it will be the combination. I think there's still legal constraints that you must, quote unquote, check that someone has a driver license, but the, but the other aspects will complement this a lot. And so if you're a new member in that space and you don't have a big user base, but you could go and have this, like you can provide a service and without having all this data at the moment, your risk is much higher and therefore you need to take higher costs because the risk for you, uh, like as an insurance company, all of these things is like, if you have, if you know less about the person, you basically have a higher risk that something goes wrong and therefore a higher price. And that's why I think at the moment, um, if you have lots of data, you can be so much more competitive. In, in many services you're providing, whether it's a bank, whether it's giving you a loan, a mortgage, or is it just giving access to certain services? And that's not the ideal world I think I'm envisioning we could be in. So I think having um, portable reputationers around you as a person, combined with maybe some of the government issued like legal um, documents I think it will be the, the ideal situation for a while. And maybe at some point, um, the bottoms up is sufficient enough to say for many services that could accept this. At the moment, that's not possible because most services by regulation and by law uh, are required to do certain things. And that's fine. I think that's, there's no big conflict. It's more, I'm way more excited about building up this bottoms up reputation mechanism as an individual. Um, but I think it, it blends together. And it will, I think the scary part is <clears throat> on the flip side, just because barely anyone in our industry talks about like all the bad things which could happen. Imagine with one click, I could now share 
my last thousand interactions with other people or every travel I did in the last like five years and I'm entering or I'm coming to a border of a certain country and the country says like, oh, to enter here, please disclose every trip you did in the last whatever five years. Um, and you can decide obviously maybe not to go into this country, but it gets harder and harder. So if you enter the United States, they have the right to get your pin for your phone or scan your device and like, or your copy your hard disk, like lots of pretty scary things, but people decide the trade off of like coming to the United States is better than like, it's the, they were not doing anything bad to me, blah, blah, blah. And I have nothing to hide, blah, blah, blah. blah. Um, but it is something which imagine it's not the United States where maybe the, the governance around in the country is not as um, liberal as maybe whatever. You get the idea. So I think, and it's very hard to return to that. So once you've given many of these countries lots of these data points, um, so bottom line, there's a lot of like things which could happen now because it's so easy and low friction to share lots of information that um, it, it can have implications which we are not really thinking about much. The, the bottom-up use cases are quite interesting. I think um, you you come from the crypto space. I uh, come into SSI from the crypto space as well. So it's stuff that we've been dreaming about for, for years that you're starting to see become uh, more and more possible. Um, one of the things I think about a lot is, and I, I still think that we're um, a, a lot of industry folks are not, at least if we just take for a second the, the top-down approach, because they're both going to exist. Um, the day that a government issues a foundational identity to their citizens, any regulated industry is um, perhaps not going to be disrupted, but they have a lot of processes that uh, are going to be disrupted. And if I just take the banking space, for example, a space that um, is trying to make a lot of plays in the, the digital ID space, right? That they're noticing that, uh, that they're threatened or there's opportunities for, for banks to use the KYC use case as a reason to, to create digital IDs. But I think about this a lot and the, the day that a government issues a, a verifiable digital driver's license or passport or whatever that foundational ID is, uh, your KYC use case is gone, right? And so, um, or it's significantly disrupted. Your current process doesn't really work the same anymore. It's basically done for you. And so when we think about, and just these top-down approaches, um, organizations need to start thinking maybe a little bit about where do they fit in that ecosystem, right? Because the, the whole top-down world is gonna be changing as well. Um, there's probably a lot of opportunities for um, industries to become service providers or just rethink differently where they fit within ecosystems, right? So you mentioned a little bit earlier that uh, key custody is, is a big um, an obstacle that still needs to be solved for. Well, there's opportunities to provide services there. You're talking about risks. Well, there's opportunities for risk underwriting. Um, you're talking about trying to extract data maybe from an Uber or an Airbnb. Well, maybe you have proxy issue or services in between time to facilitate stuff. Um, do, do you look at that the same way? Like if we're looking about like the regulated, the physical world, however we want to call it, um, how should organizations or how would you recommend to organizations think about um, their strategies of where they should be positioned in there and kind of where, where are some of the opportunities maybe that uh, you see? I think 
um, what typically helps me in these conversations with like existing entities, like what's the ultimate value proposition they have? Like if you if you talk to a bank and say like it's not that you need to control like I don't know certain aspects of like the user. The KYC is much more than quote unquote just the identifier and the the, the government identity. Imagine my dear bank, you have ten years of my history of my behavior and meetings. If you become an issuer of credentials, which which make my life easier to interact with other services, so you, my bank, know how much I'm willing to spend for food, for travel, for blah blah blah. Now you could give me, you could give like the credit score we get now at the moment from like the Equifaxes of the world is like one number. Imagine you can give me a set of whatever hundred credentials, which I can go to and uh, get access to. I don't know, certain, I don't know, restaurants because like I'm a high spender of food X. I don't know, this, that's maybe a bad example, but the, the, the core thing is that they sit on data they barely use or can only use for their own internal, let's say, offerings, but they cannot really sell it because I think at least in most countries, there are certain constraints of like what banking information you can sell, but maybe that's not true as much here, but um, the making this, as a business model, not to sell it to third parties, but give it to your users. Because if people see, and I, I see this one of people love Mint because they, they see all the financial, get all these nice reports. So I know people say, no, 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 I want to pay this with my credit card. So I see it in my Mint. If I pay this with cash, I can't. So imagine now like how people might stay using your bank and do more with your bank because you give them a more holistic store score. At the moment that we have like, and what is it like uh, reward points or something as like a mechanism to keep using the system or but so the bank could get better data more usage and could give me better credentials about me and if i now go to a drive like whatever rental car and can not only show my id but my bank gives them five pieces of information about my behavior my type of person and my reputation this is super cool so that's one thing custody um is another big thing i in my perspective, I don't want a company to hold all my stuff. In particular, if I combine my digital asset and my digital life uh, of every aspect on digital as well as my physical life with my digital identity to enter home and car and other things. We need something which allows me as an individual to pick a combination of custody providers whether it's like companies as well as uh, individuals, uh, social recovery, all these aspects. So I need to be in control over this. And what I mean with this is like, if you can replicate current world, like if I lose my wallet today, I go and need to go to the government entity first to get an ID card. Then I can go to my bank and say like, hey, here's my ID card and now need my credit card back. And blah, blah. It's not one key to control my whole life. If I have now one entity, one company, so in my mind, we need protocol or like capability that I can choose a set of different custody providers um, with different level of authority to help me to recover subsets of my digital identity and assets. And um, that means a lot of interoperability, much easier incentive structure to make sure that I can get them all together. And then the last piece of this is like, <clears throat> what's the ultimate <clears throat> place for 
like escalation to change it. Like if, if, if one of my custody providers is doing something what I don't want to, how can I take the power away? And I think that's something where I believe um, even there, public blockchains um, could be the backend system I trust most. It's the most decentralized, most secure backend infrastructure. And if I could basically go to uh, some form of smart contract and says like, hey, please remove the power from this custody provider and and they will enforce it rather than like companies amongst themselves. Um, that's kind of uh, takes a bit longer to explain, but like, that's like where I believe um, there's an opportunity for companies to think about and maybe it doesn't need to be the ultimate direction, but like just think about being a custody provider for something um, because you have trust from your users. And then what was the third aspect you mentioned that we took custody um, business model? Yeah, so I was talking about uh, just almost to kickstart sometimes to, to offer proxy issuing services if I want to extract data out of a, a silo. So yeah, I think the, um, there will be oracles um, which can operate of consuming traditional quote unquote data through an API or, or I don't know, buying data from a credit card company, whatever, whatever the source might be. And you can issue these type of credentials, um, which just means you need to, like, as an issuer of these oracles, you need to have a certain reputation. Because if you can consume a set of like unknown information um, and you abstract it away to like a new credential, then people need to trust that you did that role right. Similar to how people trust now Equifax and others to consume a bunch of private information and abstract it into like one score or like a few few data points. And if we, um, in the sovereign world, we hopefully are getting to is there should be lots of data which is not public and could become private. So if I could go to my um, quote-unquote VC Oracle provider of choice and say, here's the, whatever, 10 data points of things I received from my friends or like I have my bank statement value or whatever it is, and I give this to this Oracle, I trust this Oracle to keep my data private and the receiving side, and then it will issue a credential back to me and the receiving side uh, trust this Oracle to compute um, the statement or is trustworthy. So I think there's this really good chance that we have this middleman um, to achieve the right trade-off of privacy um, with a trustworthy statement given about myself or services I want to consume and so on. And so I think that's super cool. In my vision or future, I hope we will figure out um, using technologies like uh, SGX type things where you have secure compute um, or some, um, uh, like where you compute over encrypted data. That's kind of the ultimate idea. Like if, if I can, if I can give encrypted data to a service which can provably correct compute um, a score or a credential of this, that's the like ideal situation. Um, I don't think the tech is mature enough to, to do this uh, at scale, but I think it's a uh, super, I think, interesting um, to achieve like the, the trade-off of privacy and, and, and reputation. If you start talking about Cryptography is definitely uh, the, the the most powerful thing for uh, achieving privacy and security and, and, and sovereignty. That, that's a whole. I'm sure we could do a whole episode on on just that. 
Um, I just to, to close, I just want to go back to the, the proxy issuer services, because I, I, I think a lot of folks are, um, they're trying to kickstart digital credentialing ecosystems and they're seeing opportunities of saying, hey, I, I have a, a provider here that could do ID proofing and I have a provider here that could give me background checks and they kind of want to act as uh, the middle person for the time being to say, you know what, no one's going to be issuing verifiable credentials from the start. So, so let me kind of do that. And, and so I, I kind of want to combine that, that thought with, um, I often hear and it's everyday confusion over the terms uh, verified and verifiable. And um, I think over the past years, we've seen, um, there's been a lot of conversation about verified identity. I've also seen a lot of solutions being developed where people just hash certain data and, and put it on a, a blockchain, right? And then they talk about it as being uh, immutable and tamper-proof. and um, it's self-sovereign and stuff like that. So um, just combining kind of both of those together, um, how, how do you explain the key differences between kind of a, something that's verified and something that's verifiable? Um, why is verifiable that much more powerful than, than verified? And in these proxy issuer services, would you look at it as being verified or verifiable? Um, how, how, would you, how would you look at that whole thing? Uh, that's a good question. So, okay, let me. Okay, so I think the verifiable aspect is you don't need to trust um, middlemans. Like, assuming um, I could go to the to the issuer who has checked my ID, and they are issuing a verifiable credential, and this will travel, and and at some point, I as the receiving party can can check that the issuer really said this and, 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 it's, and it's not only um, the information, but also like I can go and check that the, the issuer had the signature, like you, you can, you don't need to trust um, whoever gave it to you because you can go back to the source and verify the information, not only for its immutability, but also like who actually put it there because the hash on, on the blockchain gives me timestamping and the immutability of the data itself. So I have integrity over the data, but it doesn't uh, define how and who put it there. You can obviously have a smart contract or something else where only the issuer of this information can add uh, entries into the smart contract, blah, blah. But the, the power is that you don't need to trust many aspects besides the reputation of the issuer. And so in the, in the case of like a proxy, the, you would need to trust the proxy to consume input of data. Like in this case, you go to like a non-fido type service where people are dropping things and you use the API and you cannot, um, you cannot give this information to the third party at the end to verify. They need to trust the proxy with that information. If the proxy can receive a certain set of verified representations or credentials, um, maybe you can have the right to inspect the raw data of some form. And so you, but I think ultimately there is this um, trust in this middleman if it's if it does any computation of this and not just gives you a presentation of the credential or like a subset or selective disclosure of 
of this information. I'm not quite sure this captured the verified because so ultimately the 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 proxy verified the data and then gives out a verifiable statement to the the third party but there's still this trust element of the proxy in between and the and and it's different if the if the proxy is just a data store which stores this verifiable credentials and you you continue to give them to someone else so it, it just changes the the trust model i'm not sure that was confusing or helpful um please help me to either either correct or go deeper you thought about this more than i did i guess that was great i think i, I mixed in a little bit the the verified versus verifiable is a topic on its own i was, uh, tried to mix it a little bit with the proxy issuer because i definitely see proxy issuer being a, a valid uh, value add that ecosystem solution providers could do right now to really get, get things move, moving right um but at the end of the day and then we talked about verifiable credentials in many digital id communities i just hear verified credentials all the time and i think that yeah. there is there is a clear misconception totally. um, but between them I, I i think the the blockchain space has started to work with like oracles and do decentralized oracles so you can say like um, the price feed of whatever the price of one Tesla stock is X. And if you have like five different entities who are able to validate this, you can now have um, a piece of data which is signed by five different entities. So in, in this proxy world, you could say like, hmm, if, if I come in and, and share this information out to five different uh, proxies, they could all like one of them issues a statement and the other five will co-sign it. So you don't need to anymore trust one individual proxy. You can have a set of proxies who will all like basically co-sign this credential in some, maybe technically it's a bit more complicated, but um, <clears throat> or all of them issue the same credential. But um, most or many of the SSI use cases are very like privacy preserving. So you, if you do this and you need to then share it to five different Oracle providers, to reduce the risk to not trust one of them, then the question is, do you rather share to the five uh, proxies or do I rather share to the consuming endpoint, like whoever wants to give me the service? Um, but in, that's only if the, if the data comes from the user. If the data comes from whatever LinkedIn's API, I think, yes, LinkedIn probably will not start doing graphical credentials on day one maybe Microsoft owns them and Microsoft is in this SSI space quite advanced, but who knows. But let's say if, I think there is a, a space for um, people to say like, I log in, like I Ruben, go to the site and give them access um, through like an um, um, OAuth thing to, to query some of my um, LinkedIn data. And they could say like, we can validate through his like identifier that this statement is true and he has whatever this type of uh, whatever work experiences and they can issue those credentials. I think it's an it's a it's a nice uh, segue into this future we are thinking. Ultimately the hope is that the the LinkedIn's of the world become the issuer of this credentials because then you don't have a middleman in between. Or that even LinkedIn is built based on verifiable information. And so credentials which I receive, like my work uh, for company A and B, I can basically use LinkedIn more as a 
mechanism to display it, but and they will only show verifiable information. Um, and so once LinkedIn shows it, it is verified by LinkedIn and uh, it displays a much richer, more quality assured set of data about me than my self-claimed uh, crazy, like whatever life and, and achievements, which I personally can enter to, to LinkedIn. So it's an, I don't know, I hope that makes somewhat sense, like that there is a lot we can do with this new primitive. Yeah, it is interesting because then you're a couple steps out where you're, you're, you're a proxy to a proxy, which is LinkedIn to the authoritative data um, or the authoritative issuer, which would be like an employer or a school, for for example. Um, so so maybe we start looking at these proxies as more uh, protocols, I guess, uh, moving forward to allow us to get there. But uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I really appreciate you doing this, Ruben, with me today. It was a fantastic conversation. I'm sure we could... Uh, go on for for a long time and i would love to do this again but thank you for doing this thank you for the conversation as well thanks for tuning in today hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as i did to stay up to speed with future episodes or to catch up on ones you may have missed make sure to check out the ssi orbit podcast on your favorite podcast platform and make sure you subscribe if you have any questions, comments, or wish to see someone in particular on a future episode, you can find me by searching Metzger Glode on LinkedIn or Twitter. Feel free to reach out to me directly and I'll get back to you. See you all next time.